So, delighted to be here with you all again. This is my second talk for Cambridge Insight, and I was hoping to be able to join you in person because uh, I'm actually in Massachusetts now, just up the road in Barrie at the Forest Refuge. But because of our COVID protocols here, we're requested to stay on site while we're teaching just to protect the meditators. So here we are online again. And still, I think it's a very powerful opportunity for us to come together and to explore this theme that I've been interested in pretty much for most of this year so far. And that's the theme of Sangha or Dharma community. So the benefits and the challenges of practicing in Sangha, creating Sangha, maintaining Sangha, which we can understand actually as a whole practice in and of itself. So big disclaimer to start with, I don't know your community at CIMC at all. I visited it in person once quite a few years ago. And as I mentioned, I've given one previous Dharma talk there. So, I can't say anything about the specifics of your community, but what I thought was just to share a few reflections from my own experience living in the different places that Nico mentioned in the introduction. And also from establishing Auckland Insight in Aotearoa, New Zealand, which is where I'm based. And just to say, none of that makes me an expert. So. Part of why I like to have these conversations is also to learn from your experience, to hear from you as we come later on in the call, just to have an opportunity for you to share your experience with Sangha. And so I can learn from you as much as anything I might have to offer. So one of the reasons that I, this topic of Sangha has felt alive for me is just the impact of COVID. So the disruption, I think that all of us have experienced disruption to our social connections and the consequent feelings of loneliness, of isolation, disconnection, alienation, depression, and so on. And so these opportunities that we have like tonight to come together and to give and to receive support, they feel to me to be needed more than ever. And then also, in, as a result of COVID, perhaps reevaluating the connections that we do have and maybe not taking them for granted quite as much as we perhaps did previously. And really more fully appreciating the meaningful, in, meaningful interactions and engagements that we can have here. So a while back when I was talking about this theme, someone reflected that that very day, probably like many of you, they'd spent many hours in Zoom meetings. But yet at the end of the day, when they came into the Sangha meeting on Zoom, they were just aware of what a different quality that particular meeting felt to have. Now, I don't know much about your particular community and your usual meetings, but I'm guessing that what we're doing here and now energetically in some ways feels pretty different from the average work meeting or maybe even family meeting. So I've been reflecting on what makes a difference? What is it that helps to create 
a sense of sangha or community and helps to maintain it. So as I said, I'd like to just offer a few reflections and then open it up towards the end for some small group practice so you can explore this, these topics together in small groups. And then we'll come back to the whole group at the end just to hear and share what we've learned. So that's the plan. And to begin with, just to say a little bit about how the Buddha himself saw Sangha. As I think most of you know, it's, Sangha is one of the three jewels or three treasures that traditionally Buddhists are invited to take refuge in. So the three jewels are the Buddha himself, and probably don't need to say, but not in the sense of slavishly following the Buddha as a spiritual authority, but more orienting to his example of the radical freedom that's possible when we live in alignment with the truth. So the truth is one way of referring to the second jewel, the Dharma. And this term Dharma has multiple meanings. So it refers to the truth, to the natural law, to how things are, you could say, to the nature of life. And this term Dharma also includes the Buddha's teachings that help us to see that truth more clearly and to live by that truth more fully so that we suffer less. So then the third jewel is the jewel of the Sangha or the community of people who are following these teachings, doing their best to develop wisdom and compassion. All of that in service of the deepest freedom of heart and mind. And that then supports others to do the same. So traditionally, Sangha referred to just the ordained community of monks and nuns, the monastics, and to people who had attained some degree of awakening. But in contemporary times, this term Sangha has been, be, been broadened to include any group of people who are sincerely trying to apply these teachings to wake up and to live with more ease and happiness and freedom. So by that definition, Sangha includes all of us here this evening. So that's a very quick definition of what these three jewels are. And perhaps some of you might be wondering, well, what does it mean to quote, take refuge in these three? Now, at least for me, when I first heard this term, this invitation to take refuge, it's, it didn't really resonate. It sounded strange to me. And I just unconsciously think, well, that's something traditional, not relevant to me, because, hey, I, I don't need refuge. And what I wasn't seeing was that I was actually pretty identified with being independent and self-reliant and not needing anything from anyone. And then when it came to this idea of being part of a community, I was pretty wary of somehow being pressured to join, to belong, to conform, to give up who I was in order to fit into a group. So just naming for any of us, perhaps, maybe all of us, we've had at times experienced that subtle pressure or tension of being part of a group or perhaps being excluded from a group. So I'll come back to that later in the talk. For now, just to say this theme of taking refuge, 
implicit in it is the idea that we need, we do need protection, we need shelter, we need a safe haven. And so as I started to explore this in my own life, I realized that, you know, I'd, I wanted to think that I didn't need refuge. But if I look more carefully, I actually was taking refuge quite a lot in things that couldn't deliver what I really needed. So I think all of us have our strategies for trying to escape the stresses and the strains of ordinary life. So we might take refuge in romantic relationships or in overworking or in buying nice things or planning pleasant experiences or taking overseas vacations. There's many, many different ways that we try to take the edge off of our existential dukkha or unsatisfactoriness. Now, some of those things I just mentioned in and of themselves, they're not inherently unhealthy. But if we're relating to them with some belief that, oh, if I can just get a better job, or meet the right person, or buy my dream home, or plan the perfect vacation, or whatever it might be, then I'll be happy. Then I'll live happily ever after. If we're relating to them like that, then we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. Because as we know, these experiences are impermanent and unreliable. They can't give us lasting happiness and satisfaction. I don't know about for you, but that seems even more obvious in the time of COVID, where there's pretty much no such thing as planning anything at all. So instead of all that, the Buddha invited us, instead of trying to find stability in an unstable world, the Buddha invited us to orient to what's more truly reliable, and that's the cultivation of our own hearts and minds. Because as we develop more inner resilience, we're not so destabilized by the inevitable ups and downs of life. And this is what taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha is pointing to. And we need those three as refuges because this inner orientation of strengthening wisdom and compassion, unfortunately, it's not the direction that the most of the rest of society is going in. So maybe we might like to think that we're immune to those external currents that we're all swimming in. And maybe some of you are, but at least in my own practice, I was a bit surprised to discover that peer group pressure didn't end when I left high school, as I wanted to believe. And when I was trying to, especially in the beginning, steer my life in a way that for me felt more meaningful, I was pretty shocked, shocked at how much pressure I felt from people around me to not go in that direction and that what I was trying to do was not appreciated or valued. So Sangha can be a refuge from that pressure to fit in, to conform, to do what's expected of us and what society keeps trying to tell us will make us ultimately happy. And this phrase, taking refuge, I think the Buddha's 
indicating that this is something we need to actively do. It's a practice and it's one that we can bring awareness to, just like we do with every other aspect of the teachings. And yet in my own experience, it's not that often that I meet groups where there is much awareness put into Sangha as a practice. Now that might be different for you at CIMC and I look forward to hearing more about that. But just again to bring in some of these topics, circling back to that idea that Sangha can be a refuge from unhelpful peer group pressure. I'd like to bring in some words from Thich Nhat Hanh, the much loved Vietnamese Zen Buddhist master who died recently. As probably many of you know, he put a huge amount of emphasis on the value of community. So he says, a good community is needed to help us resist the unwholesome ways of our time. Mindful living protects us and helps us go in the direction of peace. With the support of friends in the practice, peace has a chance. If you have a supportive Sangha, it's easy to nourish your bodhicitta, the seeds of enlightenment. If you don't have anyone who understands you and who encourages you in the practice of the living Dharma, your desire to practice may wither. Your Sangha, family, friends and co-practitioners is the soil and you are the seed. No matter how vigorous the seed is, if the soil does not provide nourishment, your seed will die. A good Sangha is crucial for the practice. Please find a good Sangha or help create one. So one aspect of what Thich Nhat Hanh is saying there that I really appreciate is the organic nature of Sangha as the fertile soil that the seeds of our awakening can grow from. And with that metaphor, we can understand that not all soil is healthy. So some of you may be gardeners. Um, I recently moved into a new co-housing community in Auckland, and it has quite a big community garden that we were establishing from scratch. And in the first few weeks after moving in, a lot of us enthusiastically plonked all kinds of seeds and seedlings in the ground. And it took a while to realize that they weren't thriving and that the reason they weren't was because the soil was not healthy. It was just basically builder's rubble and a thin layer of topsoil. So we had to do a lot of research, speak to various experts, and then do all kinds of things to help create more fertile soil. And now it's working. And at least when I left a few weeks ago, it was incredible how much food that garden was producing. So maybe you know that from your own experience. But when I think about a healthy sangha, I think of that soil metaphor. Generally, it's not enough just to hire a hall or create a Zoom room and set up a website and invite people to join us for some meditation and a talk. That's a great start, but for it to continue, for people to keep coming back, something more is needed. Something that maybe is not as concrete and tangible as having a space to meet. 
and that's the culture, the values of the group itself. So here, as with every other aspect of the Buddha's teachings, the quality of dana or generosity is the foundation that everything else springs from. So in some ways, I think of dana and generosity as like the lifeblood of the sangha. It's an act of generosity to, to establish a sangha in the first place. And it's generosity that keeps the group going and sustains it over time. There's a potential challenge here, though, because as we know, we're living here in a capitalist society. And that can't but help but influence how we relate to this. And so sometimes dana is just seen as being about giving a donation at the end of a talk or a course or a retreat to support the teachings, the teachers, the retreat centers. Now, of course, that's an incredibly important necessary aspect of generosity. But in the Buddha's teachings, what's more important than the thing being given is the spirit, the underlying quality of the heart that's motivated to do the giving. So the Buddha used a different word for this aspect of generosity. It's the word chaga, C-A-G-A. -A. And chaga is that heart quality of openness, of warmth, of receptivity and empathy. And it's the spirit of generosity. And it invites us to offer, to contribute, to share, to connect, to give. And whether that giving is money, or time, or energy, or care, or even just a smile, that quality of chaga is what helps to the sangha to flourish. And so when I was reflecting on this, I looked at the Cambridge Insight website and I saw that, um, like many groups, you're supported by the generosity of volunteering. And I was interested to see that there was a quite a long list of 16 different volunteer positions. And according to the website, they were all currently filled. So that's beautiful to recognize that offering of support. That many of you are contributing to keep this sangha flourishing. And when I was looking at the website, I saw Larry Rosenberg's words there too, that point to this same understanding of how generosity is the lifeblood of the Sangha. You may have read them, but I'd like to share them again now because at least in my own experience of being involved with Auckland Insight, it's surprising how in just the day-to-day -day running of the group, we can, the guiding values and inspiration can sometimes quietly slip out of our awareness. So this is Larry's words. When we freely offer our help in the running of CIMC, in addition to nourishing the precious quality of generosity, we're helping to create a beautiful environment that in its own way is a part of the Sangha. Our generosity supports a community of like-minded friends and brings about awareness and the liberating wisdom and compassion that flow from clear seeing. 
Now, maybe not all of you are actively participating in that way, but I always like to acknowledge that just showing up to meetings like these is an act of generosity. It's a giving of your time, your energy, your presence. And I like to acknowledge it because it's so easy to take that for granted. But if you didn't show up, obviously at some point the group would run out of energy and it would stop meeting. And then this opportunity that we have here to hear the Dharma, to explore, to practice the Dharma together, that would no longer be available to others who might benefit from it. So even though the Buddha spoke about taking refuge, it's important to keep in mind that we're also making refuge here. We're giving refuge to ourselves and to others. And it's an act of co-creation of our sanghas, it's, which is a powerful act of dana and chaga of generosity. And this is maybe even more important in the context of capitalist society, because I think the default mode is usually to be a passive consumer. We just pay our money and take the goods without much effort required on our part. But a sangha is not just a product, it's a living organism. It's a network of relationships that are founded in generosity and sustained by kindness. So now we come to another aspect of what sustains this garden of the Sangha, and that's the quality of metta that I was orienting us to in the meditation. So metta being kindness, goodwill, benevolence, universal friendliness. Now, just to say all of us here are human beings. And so individually and collectively, we might not always live up to the full expression of what metta can be. So I'm not wanting to put unrealistic expectations on anyone. But one of the most common comments I hear in relation to sanghas all around the world is that generally speaking, there is a quality of friendliness and openness and acceptance that people can experience here. And again, this is a beautiful offering. And I'm not saying that everyone always will be met with metta. Again, we're human. Nevertheless, there's that shared intention towards metta, which gives life to the Sangha and helps to establish the network of friendships that strengthen the community. So we could think of generosity as the lifeblood of the Sangha and kindness or metta as the oxygen that sustains that life. And these two come together to support that living network of friendships, of heart connections that help to form the structure of the Sangha. And so as I think many of you know, the Buddha spoke very emphatically about the need for Kalyana Mitta on this path. So Kalyana Mitta is the Pali term that's usually translated as spiritual friend. I don't know about for you, but I don't quite like that term spiritual friend. It sounds just a little bit precious or pious. Maybe it's just my ears. So I prefer to use the term Dharma friend instead of spiritual friend. You can see what works for you. 
So you probably know that very famous quote where the Buddha's attendant Ananda came to the Buddha all excited because, as he said, he just realized that Dharma friendship was half of the spiritual life, half of what's needed to walk this path to freedom. And the Buddha rebuked him pretty strongly and said, don't say that. Dharma friendship is the whole of what's needed to walk this path to freedom. So Sangha is providing us with an opportunity to create these connections that have the potential to develop into deep Dharma friendships. And those in turn strengthen the Sangha and provide a kind of a matrix for the community and our practice together to deepen. Okay, so mostly so far I've been talking about all the positive aspects of Sangha, the benefits of taking refuge, of giving refuge, of co-creating a community of Dharma friends. And it sounds good, but like everything else in life, it's not all sweetness and light. So I wanted to just touch in a little to some of the challenges we can face when we have this intention to engage in Sangha as refuge. So the first thing to be clear about is that when we're talking about taking refuge in Sangha, it's not about somehow ignoring all of the difficult and painful and messy aspects of our inner lives and our outer circumstances and the wider society that every Sangha operates within. So it's not like we're trying to create this cozy little bubble or cocoon that we can withdraw into. While it's true that at times it can be skillful to temporarily take a break from all the challenges out there, the Sangha is also hopefully a community of people who have a shared commitment to waking up and to seeing clearly on deeper and deeper levels so that we can free ourselves from unhealthy ways of being. And perhaps more than ever, these current times, they present us with so many huge challenges on a societal scale, on a global scale. And this is on top of whatever individual and family challenges we might be dealing with. And so particularly when it comes to those bigger systemic issues like social injustice in all its forms and the climate crisis, it can be very easy to feel overwhelmed, especially if we're trying to face into the magnitude of those issues as individuals. So it's not surprising we might feel daunted or despairing. But if we can come together in community to face into or face up to these challenges, we're so much stronger as a collective and we're less likely to experience burnout when it's up to more than just me to do this difficult work. So this process of turning towards difficulties, of course, it's uncomfortable and challenging, but it's good to keep in mind that that is how we grow, both individually and as a community. And so a friend of mine, she recently mentioned how the Dharma can be approached as either consolation or confrontation. 
So dharma as consolation or confrontation. And I think she said she got that term from Stephen Batchelor, but it also seems to be found in the context of contemporary Christianity. And so I was interested in that idea of the tension perhaps between dharma as consolation and dharma as confrontation remembering that the root of confront means to come face to face with, come face to face with what I might be avoiding or ignoring or denying, and then seeing if I can find the willingness to face it and to look more deeply. So we can do that same process as a sangha too, just by regularly taking time to reflect as a group on who we are and how we are, to bring awareness to the kind of norms that are developing in the group and the culture that stems from that. Because that whole process will be happening whether we're conscious of it or not. So in the sanghas that I'm involved with, we're committed to coming together once, twice a year at least, to come together for a day where we can just explore what we're doing together, to celebrate what's going well, but also to pay attention to what might need more attention. And then so we can also harvest ideas from the group about what we might develop in the future. So in terms of the culture that a Sangha develops, one of the interesting things about it is that by its very definition, a group, any group, whether it's a Sangha or any other kind of group, it includes some people and it excludes others. It wouldn't be a group if everyone belonged to it. It would be the whole of society, the whole human population. So there are always limits around groups. Always some people are in and some people are not. And so given that reality, we want to try and bring as much awareness as we can to what is sometimes an unconscious process of exclusion that can happen whenever groups of people come together. Even if we have these overt values that we want our groups to be open and welcoming, and even if we have the intention to cultivate generosity, metta, and dharma friendship, because we're human, this is always going to be a work in progress. And so sometimes when we come into contact with Sangha, we also can contact the potential shadow signs that might show up in spite of our best intentions. And all of us can bring our own patterns there too. And this is true of the broader teachings of broader Buddha Dharma. We hear so much about kindness and compassion and wisdom. And for some of us, it can trigger patterns of inadequacy and not getting it right and not being good enough and not belonging. And sometimes we bring these inner beliefs into Sangha. And sometimes too, we can have impossibly idealized hopes that the Sangha finally is where I'm going to get all of my unmet emotional and psychological needs fulfilled and I'll experience profound healing. Now, sometimes that might be possible. Sometimes 
not so much. And so I just name these things because I've often experienced them myself in relation to the different groups and communities that I've been part of. So if you happen to recognize anything in this terrain, just to try to meet it with self-compassion, wisdom and self-compassion. Because right there, the idea of the Sangha is providing us with an opportunity to see these patterns more clearly. So we're not trying to make Sangha into a comfortable nest where everybody shares the same backgrounds, the same values, the same way of thinking, and then we get cozy in that. As I think many of you know, sometimes there's been a criticism of um, some of these insight communities in terms of pointing to a fear of conflict, afraid of difference, afraid of challenge. And that's natural, it's certainly part of my makeup. Conflict isn't pleasant. And at the same time, it's what helps us to grow. And so having the willingness individually and as a group to turn towards these difficult aspects, not only within the group, but in society as a whole, can really help to strengthen Sangha. So coming back to that garden metaphor that I started with, it can be a bit like breaking up that hardened, compacted soil and we aerate it, and we mix in compost and organic fertilizers, and then the soil becomes more healthy. And then the more each one of us can do this challenging work, both individually and together, then our small pods of Dharma practitioners we can make a difference to the challenges of our time. So in this way, our sanghas can, as Thich Nhat Hanh describes, nourish our bodhicitta, the seeds of enlightenment, for our own benefit and the benefit of all beings everywhere. Okay, so those are just a few reflections, really just an uh, invitation to get the conversation started. Well, I just want to really thank you so much for joining me and for engaging in this and participating so fully and uh, bringing the themes to life. And just to acknowledge that, to say thank you, everyone, to, for each of us to appreciate the efforts that we made here this evening that they might strengthen both this taking of refuge and the offering of refuge. Again, it's for the benefit of all beings everywhere. May we know peace. So thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to explore this with you all, and uh, I hope it was beneficial. And a big thank you to Nico for hosting and managing all the different complexities so smoothly. Appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. Good night. <laughs>